Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. What a strange and chaotic year it's been. And despite the disruption to our lives, it's times like these that afford us an opportunity to look a bit farther ahead. It just may be that from a training and a racing point of view, this is just what some of us have needed. That's because sometimes you can see greater gains by looking not just at next year, but by gazing two or three years up the road. Whether you're just starting in endurance sports or unsure of what 2021 holds, looking through the proverbial telescope rather than a microscope can help you develop in new and powerful ways. There are certain physiological gains that take mere weeks to develop, and we've touched upon those elsewhere. On the other hand, some very important changes will only take place over the course of years. Your aerobic engine or stamina, for example, which involves structural changes. So if you have the opportunity to look farther ahead than ever before, how do you create the right training plan? Must you give up racing? How do you measure progress on this timescale? How big a role does trust in the plan play in proper execution? And how much volume can you safely add over the course of two or three seasons? Those questions and many more on today's episode. Today's guests are the renowned Dr. Steven Seiler and one of his Norwegian colleagues, Sondra Scarly. You've heard Dr. Seiler on the program many times before, but Sondra will be new to this audience. Formerly an elite speed skater, Sondra is now a sports scientist and consultant at the Norwegian Olympic Committee and Federation of Sports. Basically, he's a great coach on the Norwegian national team, working with a diverse set of endurance athletes, many of whom are on that four-year Olympic cycle. Of note, he became the head coach of the Norwegian speed skating team at the age of 28. This episode is very conversational. We'll take our tangents, but there are a great number of important points throughout the show. And with that, let's make you fast. Hey, Fast Talk listeners. You may have heard about our new coaching, education, and community membership program, Fast Talk Laboratories. We're pleased to offer you a chance to become a Fast Talk Laboratories member for free. Our new listener member level is free of charge and gets you access to over 130 Fast Talk episode transcripts. Our new episode transcripts are searchable, scannable, and include links to helpful resources that we mention on air. Listener members also get our weekly newsletter, which highlights new episodes and offers access to limited time free content on our site. So come join Fast Talk Labs. Just go to fasttalklabs.com, click become a member, and sign up as a listener member free of charge. Hey everyone, this is your host, Chris Case, with a personal request. In just a few days, on the winter solstice, I will undertake a personal challenge to help combat climate change. On the shortest day of the year, I will do my longest ride of the year, a ride from sunrise to sunset. My ride will benefit the Rocky Mountain Institute, whose mission is to transform global energy use to create a clean, prosperous, and secure low-carbon future. If you'd like to support my cause, just visit fasttalklabs.com slash longrideshortday. It's all one word, longrideshortday, where you will be redirected to my GoFundMe charity page. You can learn more about 
the ride and make a donation in whatever amount you like, or just share my fundraiser page with your friends. Well, we have a great episode today. It's on a slightly different topic than what we normally discuss because it's about this multi-year training concept. Not something that you think too much about, but taking that step back saying, are there gains to be had if I think long-term here, two, three years out? Um, that's the the discussion we'd like to have today. We have two great guests today. Dr. Seiler, it's Dr. Steven Seiler. We all know and love Dr. Steven Seiler over in Norway, and he's brought a colleague with him, Sondra Skarli. I want Trevor to say that as many times as he can throughout this episode, see how good he gets at that pronunciation. So welcome, guys. Welcome, Steven. Welcome, Sondra. Thanks. Thank you. Shall I give you the Canadian? Sandra? <laughs> Sandra. <laughs> oh, man. What a great start. You're off to a great start, Trevor. <laughs> Thank you. Finally, the Canadian can mock someone else. Uh, I've listened to a lot of these shows, and always it's a Canadian who uh, get mocked, but now it can be the Norwegian. Yeah, there you go. So let's dive into this topic. Um, can you see greater gains by looking further ahead? And it's uh, and it's appropriate topic to t- discuss right now because in some ways we're living through a time when maybe you can't race, maybe looking ahead it seems unlikely you'll be racing again until maybe it's the summer of 2021 or maybe it's not until 2022. So this pandemic has really allowed maybe for some people to look farther and he- farther ahead than they normally have and think about this as a time of development other other than just you know going out and doing their intervals again this they can take a, a broader view of what's going on in in their training i actually had an athlete a week ago ask me just about this so he said he he kind of regrets 2021 because he kept training, hoping that racing was going to start the next month. Mm-hmm. And so there was no long-term plan to his training. He was just always trying to stay on form. So he was never on great form. He was never really building and basically said 2020 was a waste. He burned a lot of matches and kind of just, he was, he was eating in Norwegian. They'd say he was eating the cake the whole time, you know, yeah. where he's, he's trying to stay on form right? Uh, yeah. instead of backing it down and thinking long game. Exactly. And so he was talking to me about 2021. He said, the rumor is a lot of races are going to be canceled in the spring. As Chris said, it might not be till the summer until there's racing. So he was considering a different approach of, should I just turn 2021 into a development year and really focus on 2022? And and my guess is there's a lot of people are starting to think that way. You're kind of describing what Sandra worked with, and I guess what all of us work with that that work with Olympic athletes, because the Olympiad is this four-year cycle. Uh, So just almost by definition, these, these elite athletes and their coaches are in that long game of trying to figure out, okay, you know, if they're already on top, how do we stay on top? If they're not on top, you know, is there, what's our pathway to metal contention in three years or something? So it's interesting because that, that perspective, probably learning from that maybe is going to be useful for people who now are dealing with something they're not, that they're not used to, which is having to think long-term and hop over maybe a season or something like that. That sort of brings up the big question of 
why would you need to do this? Why can't you get everything out of, you know, the training that you're doing right now? Are there things that take three years to develop? And and maybe we should discuss those things that take a short time versus those things that take quite a long time. I guess one way to think about it is, you know, if you go back to the endurance model, uh, you know, where you say, well, you, you've got your maximum oxygen consumption, you, you, you know, you can't produce more than your VO2 max over time. Then you have your threshold, you know, however you define it, your, what percentage of that can you work at for a long time uh, without fatiguing? And then you have this issue of economy or efficiency, which both involves technical development, but also some props, long-term gains in the metabolic system, in the muscular system that make you able to do more for less oxygen. So that's those big three. And then you've got anaerobic capacity that you, you spit in when it's, when it's short and, and so forth. And so, so let's say those four. Now, a time frame for the development of those, that, that VO2 max is, we think, fairly much limited by cardiac, cardiac function, by the heart, by the, the vasculature, you know, how much blood volume you have and things like that. It seems like, you know, we've tested so many young, talented athletes. VO2 max is one of the first physiological parameters for the endurance athlete that actually peaks. So in the career of an athlete, you may already see that they're really high for this value at age 18, 19. We just tested a couple of guys in our lab last week, and both of them were 88 mLs per kg. You know, and I said, look, these guys, this is already world-class, but they, they're not world-class as cyclists. Their, their, their lactate power, you know, their threshold power is not high enough. Their durability is not good enough, but they've got the big engine, and then now they're going to have to build that out. So VO2 max tends to peak pretty early and people tend to overtrain it. They, you know, that's where we get into all this interval training. They do a lot of work to keep trying to pound that VO2 max, but it's just not going to keep climbing. Then you go to these threshold type developments and those take longer because you're building mitochondria, you're building capillaries and so forth. Uh, efficiency, it seems from the literature, some from case studies and so forth perhaps takes even longer, meaning that we see slow gains in, in efficiency over time, you know, over several years of training. There's a case study involving uh, Paula Radcliffe, the marathoner, where it looks like that was one of her big changes that led to her world record was she just became more economical as a runner. Her VO2 max stabilized, her threshold stabilized, but she got more efficient. So, that's that seems to be the time course vo2 max peaks threshold then peaks pretty soon and then you get into these durability and efficiency developments and you know and in cycling those are really important because the races are so long so what you see is the athletes slowly extend their you know the duration that they can be competitive you know we've talked about this stuff before and those that takes longer you know uh sandra so you're living in uh, Grim Arndal, right? Or Grimstall? Yeah, Arndal. Yeah, so he, the neighbor community, but between the two cities where we live is a city called Grimstall, and that's where this former world champion named Tor Hussold lives. Uh, he was a very good cyclist. He, he won the world title in uh, 210, I believe it was, down in Australia. And, and Tor was called the Ox of the North. 
you know, because he was a reasonably big cyclist at 80, maybe 81 kilos or something like that. Uh, and he struggled with the longest races. It took him a long time, years before he was really competitive in the classics because they, they're that extra hour longer. Uh, you know, and he had a huge VO to max. He won the U23 world championship as a time trialist uh, in 97, I guess it was. Then he, you know, so he's got the engine really early, but then it takes him years to build. He struggled in the heat at Athens Olympics. He couldn't, you know, he was just too big. So again, he, by the time he finally wins the world championship as a cyclist, it's 2010, you know, and that's 13 years after he was a U23 world champion. So, uh, and I think he would argue that he, you know, he got better at some things over time. We are talking to the perfect person here because when you look at traditional research, as you know, it is hard to find 10 subjects to do a three to six month study to try to find enough subjects to say, let's do a five to eight year study on your progression uh, in a traditional study format is next to impossible. So there isn't a ton of research on this, and what research there is has to find more unique ways to get at this. Sondra did kind of an experiment, not really as a scientist, but Sondra was my student as a master's student, and he had already been a junior coach. He had already worked with some of the best junior-level uh, skaters in Norway, uh, meaning that, you know, the, the Norwegians, they, they literally – didn't Sandra, didn't they go one, two, three in one of the junior world championships? Yeah. 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 So he did his master's project was looking at that developmental process for these junior athletes that he had worked at. And then he ends up going many, uh, several of them go on to be senior level athletes and he becomes their senior national team coach. So I think Sandra is a good person to <laughs> kind of dive into this and in that you, he actually, was doing one of these five to seven year experiments. It's uh, quite interesting uh, what you uh, started with, Stephen, because uh, what we saw on those athletes uh, was that their VO2 max was really high at early age, at 17, 18. They peaked and uh, later, like seven, eight, nine, ten years later, then they went from the best junior skaters in the world to the best senior skaters in the world. But their VO2 max didn't increase at all. If anything, it went maybe even slightly down. So, but we did see a lot of other gains. So it's like you said, efficiency, threshold, technique, but also the thing about uh, racing. Uh, we were talking about first of uh, maybe taking a year off without competing. There might be some benefits to taking a year off without competing. You can train more, which can be good, but there is also a lot of learning in competing. So by having a year where you don't focus on the competitions, but you focus on the long term, then you can develop and also get the uh, benefits from competing because it's uh, quite few athletes that can just uh, show up in a race and haven't raced for a long time and then suddenly you can win. There is a lot of uh, learning by doing a lot of competitions as well. But uh, it is interesting, uh, the thing about the VO2 max that is so stable. We also have a lot of um, not unpublished studies on uh, different uh, athletes where I work uh, 
in the Norwegian Olympic Training Center for um, everything from uh, rowers, cyclists, runners, speed skaters, cross-country skiers, kayakers. And we, we have a lot of data from uh, the development from they were young, like 10, 11, 12 years up to the age of 30 and more. It is really interesting to see how they work with multi-year plans and how they uh, gradually increase their training loads. And also what we see here on is their VO2 max doesn't change that much. And, and another aspect of this is the relative cost of achieving certain adaptations, both in terms of time and effort. So, you know, if we go back to that, uh, I often talk about fresh fruit and, you know, software, hardware. Uh, a lot of athletes are interested in their anaerobic capacity, you know, their lactate tolerance, and they do these super high intensity intervals. And you can, you do get adaptations. If you haven't been doing uh, these, you know, 3015s or some kind of a, high, a really high intensity interval training, then a little bit of that will improve your anaerobic capacity. It's, it's, I know it will. And the thing about it is, though, it only takes a few weeks, you can get a big improvement, a 10% improvement or so in a few, in like four workouts, uh, if they're well, well executed, but they're costly and they're fresh fruit because that adaptation is what I would call a soft, a soft adaptation. It's, it's some proteins in your, in your blood and in your, in, in the, in the intracellular space, it's some changes in buffering. It's, it's stuff that both comes pretty fast, but it goes away pretty fast. And it's really costly to maintain, you know, because you have to do these really high intensity efforts that, that cause a big stress response in order to get those soft adaptations. So we're going to time that training. We're not going to do that at times of the season when we don't need that little turbo, if that makes sense. Uh, and so this is, this is about being the chess player and knowing when to play your, you know, put your players in different position on the board and when to emphasize your basics and when to bring in a little bit of that top end work that is costly, but that re results in relatively fast adaptations, but also, uh, what should I say? They, they, they will also deteriorate more rapidly. Whereas that, that long haul stuff, the long and the low intensity, the volume, there tends those adaptations research shows us that with the training, they may are maintained longer capillary density and so forth like that. It seems it's, it's like it's infrastructure that's been built. The lattice work in the cells has been built and it doesn't decay as quickly as those soft adaptations. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. So uh, I like the way you put it. I, I describe it to my athletes as structural versus biochemical changes. And, yeah. and exactly what you're saying. So the those biochemical, they come quickly, they disappear quickly. So that, that was the point I was going to make is if you're doing a development year, really focusing on that stuff, saying, I'm going to, I'm going to just get that top end that much stronger to me is a little bit of a waste of, of development year because you're going to bring that around pretty quick, but you're not going to get any really big long-term adaptations. I would be focusing more on that aerobic engine, the, the sides, as you said, they take a long time to develop, but once you have them, they, they seem to stick around. Yeah. And if it was like, like in the case of my daughter, I, our, her long-term goal is to be a marathon or be a half marathon or that at a high level, but she needs more speed. Her, she needs 
uh, you know, front top end speed. So this next six months, she's going to train like a middle distance athlete. Not because I think she's going to be a good middle distance runner. In fact, I know she's pretty, pretty certain she's not, but we're not going to use that narrative. We're going to say, Hey, we can get better at this, get faster, but it takes a long-term investment. It takes, uh, you know, a cycle of several, uh, a couple months of dedicated strength training to kind of help tweak, push up that foundation that normally maybe she wouldn't do if it was a normal season where we're preparing for a half marathon in March, but we're going to drop that half marathon in March because probably it's not going to happen anyway. So no sense planning on it uh, because of the pandemic. So we, we know that competitive schedule in the early months of this year are, is probably going to be curtailed. So let's just, let's, instead of being upset about that, let's plan it in and use that to build the, build the foundation more so, so that's, that's our mentality is just kind of getting on the front end of this and anticipating things and then using it to our advantage instead of being reactive and disappointed, you know, when we kind of know what, what's the writing on the wall looks like. And I think uh, a lot of athletes has a lot to learn here because uh, earlier this week, I had a conversation with a national team uh, female cyclist. And uh, she wanted uh, some uh, tips for uh, how to improve. I want to be in best shape as soon as possible. And I said, do you want to be in best shape as soon as possible, like in December? Or do you want to be really good in June, July, August, and September? Because that's probably not the same approach. And then you have to uh, decide what you want. Of course, she said, I want to be fast in the summer. Okay, but then there's a different approach. Because there is, you can always do some short-term gains, but those are not necessarily the same stuff you would do if you want the long-term gains. And then you have to decide what you what you want, what's right in front of you, or do you want to think in the long term. And if if you're going to make a huge progress or do something you've never done before, you probably have to do something that you haven't done before, or to kind of go a more uh, not dramatic uh, uh, way approach for it and I think uh, a lot of athletes has a lot to learn there yeah I mean you're not going to do in in the competition what you haven't done in training you, you're not going to you know that's what I always say to my daughter there, there's no magic there's not going to be magic on race day you know and often we say train the training is tougher than the races if you've prepared well because you will have prepared your body with these different different kinds of sessions. And then it's all going to come together on race day. Uh, but you, you, there's no magic. So if you say, well, I, you know, I, I just don't make it to the finish line with enough watts. I, I fall apart. You know, I, the, the two, three-hour races are too long or whatever. Well, fella, I'm sorry, but that's not going to change if you keep doing what you've always done. It's not going to suddenly get better you're going to have to change your training and change your, you know, the, 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 the machinery, uh, which probably means you're going to have to do more base. You're going to have to extend your durability. You're going to have to get better at, 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 you know, sparing glycogen. It's staying in the pack at, at being efficient, being technically efficient and so forth to get to the finish line with something to give. That's a, that's going to take a kind of a reframing of your training. Um, 
but but it's really important for us to understand that that doing the same thing I've always done harder <laughs> is not going to be the answer. If uh, okay. if you're not satisfied with where you're at, you know, you're going to have to rethink and rebuild your engine or your your machinery. A funny quote about that was uh, all the Eastern blocks, the East Germans, when they had the evaluation after the season, then uh, they uh, had the, the athletes and the coaches together and they asked, so what's the next year's plan? And the coach, he took the plans from last year, put them on the table, bam, this plan plus 10% in everything. So that was the plan. <laughs> and, <laughs> So what about next year? <laughs> yeah, probably the same thing, plus 10% of everything. <laughs> I have to add to that anecdote with the same Eastern Bloc. Uh, you know, back in the United States for a while, there was a, a rowing training center in, in, I think it was in Virginia. Uh, it's mostly in San Diego now, but, but at any rate, this, the, the Russians came over, some Russian athletes came over and joined the Americans and they were doing a, uh, one of the most, gruesome tests in rowing, which is a 10,000 meter on the rowing machine. Um, and this big Russian guy, he, he's looking and, and some of the female athletes are doing the tests and he goes over and finds a dictionary and an English dictionary and looks up some words. And then he walks over and just re and bends over into the ear of this woman who's right in the middle of this hard 10,000. It's about a 35, 38 minute test, you know, and he just says, suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and that was his, you know, that was his contribution to the, you know, it's not always about suffering. It's not always about suffer more makes me better. There's, there's enough of that. But uh, I, I do think that we have to also just do the grind, be smarter, build and now's the time. Now's the time. And you talked about do it five months versus two months and that. Um, I would, if I were going to think in terms of stretching a mesocycle or stretching a planning phase during this, you know, let's face it, probably not going to be a lot happening on the international circuit. Not a lot of group races and so forth coming this spring. Uh, I think it's fair to say, looking at the COVID-19 issues, both in Europe and the United States, Canada, this spring is not going to be normal. Um, we're in, you know, I think just the, the writing's on the wall. So let's go ahead and really plan on stretching that, that, that build phase out. But I would probably, you know, instead of saying, well, it's going to, instead of being eight weeks, it's going to be 16. I would break it up into at least two blocks or two with a little bit different you know, some sub goals and some testing on both of those. Does that make sense? I, I'm always, like Sondra said earlier, I think you always have to break up the big goal into smaller um, milestones and, and, and give them multiple opportunities for success, but also to help to be focused for a certain number of weeks on something and then have a little crescendo and then get back to work. But, you know, break up this, this six month path into three, uh, what is it going to be, you know, six weeks or whatever, or, or, you know, four or five different little blocks with different, um, tests, different milestones, different 
races, whether it's on Zwift or at home or a time trial around the block or whatever, in order to, um, you know, kind of give yourself some motivation along the way. Here's Robert Poulter, an athlete who has worked with Trevor for years and someone who decided to look farther ahead and expand the schedule at which he developed, building over several seasons instead of a single year. Robert, tell me a little bit about what brought you to the point where you wanted to sit down with your coach, who happens to be Coach Connor, Trevor Connor, and map out something that was maybe a little less uh, traditional, a little unorthodox, looking two years ahead, three years ahead. I'd like to say it was actually me that came to Trevor with that suggestion, but it was actually the other way around. Trevor and I have been working together for about four years now, uh, and it's I can tell you the story at some other point how we got to meet each other, but um, when I reached out to him to potentially be a coach for me, he, he actually interviewed me more and told me more about his approach to training athletes and how he thought about cycling and basically asked whether I was prepared to do it the way he thought about it as opposed to what I actually wanted to do. He said, look, we're going to go on a journey together and you're not going to like the first two years of this journey because I'm going to force you to do things that you don't actually think are going to make you fitter. And he said, one day you will wake up probably two, two and a half years after we start working together and you will call me and say, something magical happened on my bicycle. (laughs) I actually did something that I didn't think was possible. That's kind of how it started. And Trevor was very clear with me from the outset that this was a, a long journey and that fitness and improving one's fitness actually takes an awful lot of time and has to be done in a structured, methodical way. And thinking about doing, as you said at the start of this interview, just a series of intervals to make you faster isn't actually going to produce the results that you wanted on a sustaining basis. It seems like there must have been two, two key elements here, patience on your part and trust on your part. Do I have that right? There's a third, which is, and maybe it's related to trust, which is recognizing that I actually am a terrible cyclist and I don't know what I was doing. And after having ridden bikes for probably six or seven years and not getting any faster, I had to recognize that there were potentially people who knew something that I didn't and could be helpful to me. So maybe that's related to trust, but I had had a coach before Trevor who actually made me go slower, not go faster. (laughs) Well, that's not what you want to hear. (laughs) So I think it was probably a combination of myself self-awareness that I actually was getting worse, not better. The second was Trevor articulating a vision that I frankly hadn't ever really heard before, knowing his history and the results that it had produced for him. I think that's what actually led us to a place where we could we could actually go on this journey together. And the trust came over time, to be, to be honest with you. The trust, the trust was not out of the gate. It, it came over time. Tell me a little bit more about what that vision was. I would assume that there was a goal at the end of this. What, what was the goal and how did you get there? First of all, I think we need to acknowledge that I'm a, I'm a middle-aged fellow with two children, two grown children, a full-time career. And for me, riding my bicycle uh, was a way to stay healthy um, and also fulfill my unfulfilled athletic dreams from, from my youth. Sure. I had a group of colleagues who were my age in similar situation that I ride with every weekend, like probably a lot of people who listen to your podcast. And I was just frustrated that I was getting drops. And I just said to Trevor, I said, I don't, I don't want to get drops. And he said, well, that's kind of vague. Uh, and we talked about what that actually means and, and took it apart. And 
you know, what Trevor explained to me that I didn't, I didn't really understand was the nature of cycling in Toronto versus the nature of cycling elsewhere. And what I'm about to say is not intended to impugn cyclists in, in Toronto. It's just the, the nature of living in a city of 6 million people where you got to ride your bike an hour to find any stretch of road that isn't interrupted by a stoplight or a stop sign. And Trevor explained to me, he said, look, the riding that you do in Toronto is you ride very, very slowly, and then you go very hard for 45 minutes, and then you ride very, very slowly. That is a challenge for people like you, because what you don't actually get is you don't actually get the base fitness to support the kind of efforts you need to do for 45 minutes. He said, on top of that, cycling when done kind of properly is not really a 45 minute exercise. It's a three to five hour event and you have to build a very different level of fitness. And he said, if you want to work with me, he said, I'm going to help you build base fitness. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to help you materially improve your five minute power or your two minute power. He said, because that's not really going to be the differentiator. He said, what the differentiator is going to be is that you can go out and sustain medium to high levels of power hour after hour after hour and that you can insert good efforts in the middle of it and do it again and again and again so he said my model of fitness is sustained as as he and i like to talk about a base power and then the ability to put out repeated sustained efforts that you just kind of grind people down if you like that model he said i can get you that model and he said you'll be really pleasantly surprised when you actually go and do a real bike race, not the, you know, Saturday morning world championships. I was prepared to do that because, you know, I, I do have the opportunity of riding with people in my circle, some who've been on the national Canadian national cycling team and that in their youth. So they actually really know. And, and I've observed this about them, which is they just, even in middle age, they still put out sustained power and they fail at four hours. They don't fail after 45 minutes. Right. And, and so I admired that. And that, that was the process we started on. That was kind of the mental image that Trevor painted for me. And that's what we started working on. And how long ago was that? Four years ago. Okay. And the first two years, the first two years were, the first two years were painful for me personally. Um, because I had to learn a lot. Um, and, and I, I, what I, I learned from Trevor, which was really, really hard to do, was when you go slowly, you go slowly. And when <laughs> yes. you go hard, you go really hard. Right. And I know that sounds very simple when I articulate it, but you know, when you're new to cycling and it's a social thing for you and it's not your profession, you go and you ride with your buddies and we're all competitive, so you just want to push the pace. And it took me a very, very long time to internalize and learn what slow was and what it looks like and what hard is and what it looks like. And as I say it, you sit here and you say, yes, it's a very simple concept, but for, I think, many amateur cyclists like me, it's an incredibly difficult concept to internalize. Here's something interesting to think about. The stimuli that you need to you know, we talked about maximize that cardiovascular component. You want to drive huge, you know, venous returns to the heart. You want to get huge filling. So you stretch the heart. So you expand stroke volume slowly. Then it seems to respond by number one, adding volume of blood. And then two, it increases the muscle that literally you get a, a cardiac hypertrophy. But those stimuli are kind of unidimensional. You, you can do it and it it only can go so far. 
But what's interesting is if you go over to that, if that more peripheral, peripheral adaptation part, it's kind of a, a positive cycle that you go into because as the athlete develops more mitochondria, as they tolerate more volume, then they further develop the ability to, you know, work over a longer period. So it's a positive cycle. But one of the big things in Norway and in other countries is how rapidly can you increase training volume over time? Because that's a double-edged sword. More volume creates more stimuli, but more volume also can lead to more stress and breakdown. So, you know, we have these rules of thumb in Norway that, that Sandra knows better than me about, you know, how many hours of training per year do they add, maybe 100 hours a year. Yeah, it depends on the sports, but from 50 to 100 hours a week for younger athletes is kind of the rule of thumb. Yeah, so Sandra, what's a 15-year-old, 16-year-old cyclist, skate, speed skater, what kind of volumes are they doing if they're pretty good, if they're competitive in the, at that age? Yeah, about 750 to 800 hours a year. Uh, one of the guys I coached, uh, when he was 12 years old, he did 900 hours of training. Uh, wow, uh, that's, that's a lot. Not, uh, yeah. <laughs> that I wouldn't was, recommend uh, with, that. <laughs> uh, no, but that was not organized training. That was, uh, he went uh, hiking in the mountains. He went skiing by himself. He went playing soccer with his friends. He went on the trampoline. Uh, he did all kinds of stuff. So, right. uh, And that's what, what you see when you look back to the best senior athletes. They did a lot of training in young age. It was not that much organized, maybe just three, four hundred hours of training. Then they did additional four, five, six hundred hours of unorganized training. So a question for both of you, and I certainly have my opinion on this, but I really want to hear uh, what both of you have to say about this. As you're adding that, that volume, so if you're adding, let's say, a hundred hours every, every year, What's the distribution of that increasing volume? Uh, I'm assuming as you add more, you're not going to be adding the same um, same distribution. My guess is you're you're probably going to become a little more polarized as you're getting more and more and more volume. But what do you? How do you approach it? What do you generally see? You have to add up the volume. You make longer workouts. Uh, what you do in uh, intensity, you do you do increase more. And of course, when you get uh, older, you also, in a lot of sports, you do double or uh, even three workouts a day, but mostly two times a day. And then uh, a lot of younger kids, they can't do twice in a day. So you, you increase the volume. And, uh, and the hard sessions, you can't increase that much because uh, it, it just gets too hard and you don't necessarily need to have that many hard workouts. But if you do, there's a lot of uh, sports now more and more we see in Norway. They do twice hard workouts in one day. So in a week, you maybe only have two days with high intensity training. Then you can have them on the same days. So then you kind of polarize in the week. So you don't get that hard, many hard days. You can get... Uh, Slightly less on each workout, but then the total amount of volume kind of adds a bit more up without stressing the body too much. Uh, it gives uh, better space for easy endurance training. It gets uh, for strength training. And it also gets kind of the same physiological stress during the day. So I think that's uh, an approach that is growing. Right. And that's music to my ears because that's how I understand the whole training process is that 
the body, you know, I think it's reasonable to think of as a, a training day, how much of a stress, because once you turn on that big stress response, it's kind of turned on. Uh, we see this, you know, an, an anecdotal example is, uh, you know, the, the, the Ingebrigtsen brothers, they literally have done times where they've raced. And then after the race, which in Norway, they often win pretty, pretty easily, then they've continued doing more interval training. Uh, just because their dad says, well, we've already, you know, we're not going to waste this day. We've already started this day as a high, you know, it's a hard day. So let's just get the most out of it. Uh, and so that's kind of goes along with that idea of categorizing training days, not training minutes uh, from your, from your watch. Yeah. And I think what you said there, Stephen, is really important. We did the exact same thing in speed skating after every competition, especially in the, in the season, you don't, if you compete every weekend in a row, then you don't have that many days you, you can really train the system. So we also uh, always did uh, into training after the races. Uh, and it, it's uh, the, once you just you start kind of uh, pumping out some uh, hormonal stress, then you, you kind of w want an effect from it, not just uh, having it, but you want it to actually mean something. So then it makes sense to, to do it the same day and then you can have a, a recovery day afterwards and then start up training again. Right. And, and we got to remember, Sondra and I are talking about sports where the, the competition duration is minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they're, they're warming up for an hour and then doing a 1500 meter race or a 5,000 meter race or a, or 2000 meter row, you know, these kind of scenarios or even for me, Zwifting, I, if I do a 20 minute race and uh, you know, I, I'm, if I recover for five or 10 minutes and I can keep, keep going after it, as long as I didn't all the, go all the way to throwing up, you know? So I've even done that myself as a 50 plus guys is to do a race and then try to kind of get a little more out of that workout uh, the same day. I was reviewing some of the long-term athlete development program research last night because that's something that really looks at this long-term, looks at development, though it's very much focused on, on youth. And I found it interesting that some of the research behind that basically said when you're dealing with really young kids just starting in the sport, you know, they're very big on it should be mostly fun. And they were saying volume is so low they can pretty much be doing mostly just racing buddies, doing races on the weekend. It can be a whole lot of high intensity. But then as you got to later stages, they're saying as you're increasing the volume, um, now they have to worry about actually making sure they're recovered for next sessions. Uh, so it seemed like it really promoted not increasing the intensity, but just adding volume and, and a lot of that volume is going to be lower intensity and then learning how to effectively recover so that you can adapt. Yeah. And I, my only fear on that model, which is, you know, it's kind of a, I'm from the United States and it's an intensity model. And unfortunately it's driven also by, there are a lot of competitions in the, in the coaches who are also the dads and the moms want to see their kids win. And, and so there's a big focus on, effort, intensity, and so forth, and then not necessarily enough focus on technical development. Uh, you know, if you're a skater, a rower, and so forth, there's a lot of technique in these, in these sports. And actually, they, the technical development, dry, learning those motor pathways happens best at lower 
cadences, lower frequencies initially, uh, that you need to kind of put that, you know, in rowing, we all, we would do tons of rowing at a, at a, a frequency or a cadence that was like half or less than half of race cadence, uh, which you can do in rowing, you know, you can go down to that. And I think in, in speed skating, you would see the same as they're doing a lot of, you know, where they're really rhythmic and they're really working on that, that technical aspect, which then will, they'll be able to reproduce at high powers and paces in races. But if you're always just floundering at high frequency and high, high, um, you know, race pace often the technical development is not good enough uh, i agree totally because you just can't do the enough amount of time in the specific position or training wise if you only do a high intensity training and for young athletes yeah. especially if young athletes want to uh, have a big goal as a senior athlete they want to uh, uh, get on national team or to the olympics uh, and so on then you have to learn how to train as a young kid. You, you just, you have to learn how to live like an athlete and then doing this uh, gradually. And then the low intensity training is really a big part of it because you have to learn how to control your body, how to listen to your body uh, and, uh, mm. and how it responds to training. Uh, learning young kids to uh, do the easy long sessions is really important as well. You talked about these junior world champions that you trained that then made the transition to senior level. Well, how many years did it go before they were senior world champions? Ten years uh, on one of them, eight on the other one, and uh, the third guy was seven. So it's it's normally a lot of years. Or never. Yeah, most people never do it, of course, because there is uh, on the senior there is uh, of course bigger competitions, and uh, in junior it's only an age group of two years. In seniors, it's all uh, grown-ups. It's tough to make it. Now maybe we turn this back to our discussion about the the bulk of our audience out there, I think, which would be amateurs um, who may be in two different situations. They're new to the sport and they want to find what their top form might be and they have some years to play with. Or some people that have maybe stagnated by doing what they've been doing for year after year and they want to explore something else and see if there's more to tap into by this long-term planning concept. What does what how how do we apply all the things we've been talking about for the last section here to that situation? And I think to answer those two questions there is a, a an important underlying question we need to answer which is can you just focus on each individual year and assume that the each subsequent year is going to build on the form of the previous year? Or is there a benefit to saying, I might sacrifice a year or two to reach a higher level two, three years from now? Yeah, and get worse before you get better, so to speak. Definitely, you would uh, have a lot of gains by uh, looking at it long term in uh, several years. First of all, because if you start a sport and you want to be good at it, but you haven't done that much training, then you should have a gradual approach. Because if you start too hard, even though if it's uh, low intensity training, then it's a big uh, impact on the body. So you need time to recover and you need to learn. You need to train a lot to be able to train a lot, if you know what I mean. So you have to uh, increase gradually. And as we said uh, in the beginning here, 
it's you, you shouldn't increase more than uh, maybe up to 100 hours a year because then the risk of getting injured or getting overtrained or sick uh, increases too much. So by having a long-term plan, I think uh, it prevents, maybe you can pre prevent it totally, but it, it uh, increases the chance of uh, doing something wrong. And uh, if you look uh, at long-term careers, then injuries is often what takes the total volume down. If you get a lot of sick, if you get injured, a week there, a week here, a month there, then suddenly you lose hundreds of hours of training. So that also helps to keep the volume up. Even though you don't increase it too fast, then you end up with a higher volume anyway. And I normally say it, uh, you have to always start with a goal. And if you start with the goal, it's like uh, getting in a car and uh, putting on the GPS. Then you kind of know where to drive because you can follow the directions. And probably you can uh, go from A to B faster. Stuff can happen along the road, of course, like in sports. But uh, it's way faster than if you just get in the car and then try to figure out the way <laughs> as you go along. Same thing goes for sports. So you should always invest time in a good plan, even uh, if it's uh, just uh, people who want to make a good race, uh, even though it's not the uh, elite level, then the more time you invest in the planning, the better you are. Athletes, they do what we say in Norwegian. They think from uh, hand to mouth. They only see what's right in front of them. I do think you bring up a fantastic point when you say you know, somebody who's new to this, making sure that your body can handle the, the increases. Way before I was any sort of a serious cyclist, but it was something that always struck me. When I was uh, a freshman in college, we had a woman in our dorm who was a, a Olympic hopeful skier. And she used to bike to classes like I did. And one day biking the class, she got absolutely nailed by a car, like flipped over the car. And was a little banged up and bruised, but she basically walked away from it. Um, you know, she obviously went to the, the hospital to get checked out. And what she was told by the doctor is most people, if that had happened to them, they'd be in the hospital for a month. But she was so fit it, developed her body so well that she could handle it in a way that most people couldn't. And that always had an impact on me and was something that I remember when I got into cycling, which is to be able to handle the sort of the ultimate, the, the, the ultimate training load that you want to be able to handle. You're, you have to get your body to a place where it is tough enough, fit enough, strong enough to do that. And that isn't always just more time on the bike. That's time in the weight room. That's doing all the other stuff to, to build your body to handle it. Oh, absolutely. And I, I love that example. I, the athlete group that has always impressed me most here in Norway, when you talk about that, just that robust trainability and, and that, that's alpine skiers. Uh, and they're exactly the same kind of people, you know, you, they get hit, you know, <laughs> they crash, they go flying through the air, thir 30 meters, you know, land in the snow or whatever. And then they walk away from it very often. And a good part of it is just because of their, you know, how much motor training, how much strength training, how much just general training they do. Uh, so they have just a great deal of, of what should I say, robust. They're, they're, they are, their bodies are just made for uh, the battle. 
And I think there is something to that. I, I'm, I've, I was with my daughter, the skinny runner yesterday in the weight room and, and she's doing, you know, bench press and, and rows and she wants to get her upper body or I want her to get her upper body a bit stronger. I want her to get her whole frame a bit more robust that I, and I think that's going to help us down the road to increase her, her maximum speed which is then going to later down the road improve her half marathon and marathon, which is the ultimate goal. So that, that sounds like a convoluted path, but it's the long game and we think it's important. And I think a lot of athletes do as well that, that, you know, they have to think about, and that's a, that's a COVID-19 issue right now is right now, this is the time. If you have said, well, you know what? I've always had a left, right imbalance between my legs. I pedal more with the right. Well, Good grief. Now's the time, my friend. Now's your chance to do some focused work on correcting that imbalance. Or you say, I, my low back is always, you know, I've got this thing. Now's the time, friend. This is when you can make these, these changes to your body, to your technique. Sondra could probably exemplify this on the technical aspects. If you're going to fundamentally change some technical aspect, then usually you have to break things down and technique gets worse before it gets better. For example, that may not be such a big deal in cycling, but in a lot of other sports it is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I also think uh, with this COVID situation, it's uh, kind of a unique uh, situation for a lot of people and you can uh, de develop some uh, stuff you normally don't. For instance, there are a lot of uh, amateur cyclists. I'm cycling a bit myself, and then uh, with the uh, guys I'm training with, uh, many of them, they're afraid of uh, strength training because, oh, my legs feel so bad the next day, so I don't want to do weights. But then again, you have to think for the long term, it's really good for you if you, maybe if you did once a week, uh, at least in certain times of the year, even though it doesn't help you short term, it will probably help you long term both by technical aspects uh, and uh, also injury prevention and also bone mass density, which is important for uh, cyclists, runners, swimmers, who's not that big or not that strong. So there is a lot of benefits. You can use the situation now where it's not that many competitions. So maybe you can actually invest that extra time in something you don't prioritize normally. Mm -hmm. Well, I've seen that a lot with athletes that they're doing well, they're getting into the sport. So they, they do exactly what you just said, which is each year they, they up their volume, take their training a little more seriously, and they think, oh, I'm on this great path. And then they hit that year where now their knees are bugging them. Now their back is bugging them. They start having all these issues and they get really upset and go, you know, I was the most serious I've ever been this year. And this was going to be my year. This was going to be great. And now I'm getting hampered by all this bad luck. Well, actually, it's sometimes not bad luck. It's, it's exactly what we're talking about. They didn't do the preparation, the other work that they needed to have their body at the point where it could handle the sort of volume, the sort of training they, they wanted to throw it. And Stephen, I agree with you completely that um, this would be a really good year if there's no racing coming up and, and we have to adjust to, to do that sort of work. One of my personal Zwift heroes is is uh, Lionel Sanders, you know, who's actually an Ironman triathlete. But, you know, he, there haven't been that many Ironman triathlons. So that, you know, that kind of racing has been fairly uh, limited in 2020. And so what does Lionel do? Well, he says, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to increase my short game. I'm going to try to get 
better at, you know, the 5K, better at one hour of cycling. So he both breaks his own personal record in the 5K and he, and he breaks the Canadian record in the, in the hour on the track in cycling in the same week, which I found pretty impressive. That's a peak. Yeah, but, but, but he chose to go into the individual components of his triathlon machinery and improve his upper, his, his upper power, his, you know, his short game, and, and try to make himself maybe more like a typical ITU, uh, you know, Olympic distance triathlete. And he knew that he had to get a faster 5K, a faster, you know, hour type cycling time trial power. So he's used that year to work on that, you know, and then, and then try to uh, be ready and extend it when the, when the racing comes back. So uh, I think there are examples of even at the highest levels, athletes that have kind of gone into the workshop, as you will, and looked at how can I uh, reframe, rebuild, adjust, tweak my, my body in a positive direction. We had an example here in Norway, and I think it's, I, I don't have the whole picture in front of me, but we have a, a distance runner named Carlina Gravdal that has been for several years the best distance runner in Norway on the women's side, 31 in change, 10K runner, 10,000 meter Olympian, world championship athlete, but, but still not quite at the top, you know, and she's had some disappointments. She's had some injuries. Uh, and then this COVID year, she also got hurt and she was forced to train alternatively. Train, it seems like a lot of strength training, a lot of alternative stuff. And then she was able uh, to get back into normal training only about late July, August. And then she had the national championships in cross country and she had a, a singular kind of invitation level 10,000 10, or 10K road race. And she just, I watched her, I was at both races and she was absolutely phenomenal. And the 10K road race, she ran the second fastest 10K by a European runner ever in top 16 all time, only behind Paula Radcliffe in Europe with a 30 minutes, 32 seconds. So she took almost a minute off her PR uh, at an age of 30 you know, by re kind of rebuilding and, 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 and maybe even benefited from not having so many competitions. I, I really not sure, but all I know is she, Sandra, you, you're here, you've seen that. And she looked fantastic, just strong and, and more, almost more muscular than I've ever seen her as a distance runner. Actually, this podcast where she talked about it and uh, as you said she did a lot of uh, alternative training she did uh, hiking she did some cycling long hill tempos and easy rides and a lot of alternative training and this should be really motivating for a lot of uh, both amateur athletes and elite athletes because every time one door closes another door opens and you should always be curious on what could be open on the other door Injury doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing. Often, of course, it will. But you can use that as an investment for something else. You see a lot of athletes coming back after injury, stronger than ever. In alpine skiing, as Stephen mentioned earlier, you see that so often. Then they really build on what they need to, and they get back stronger than ever. 
Well, and also a lot of female athletes after childbirth have come back better than ever for various reasons, I, I think. But again, a, a gap year or a unloading year or whatever does not need to be uh, a negative. My colleague, who is a Canadian, uh, we were coaches together in the Norwegian national team in the Pyeongchang Olympics. He was the best sprinter in the world in speed skating, Jeremy Waterspoon. He was at the top for many years, and then he took a year off and trained different than normal. And then one more year, and then he got back better than ever and just crushed the world records. If you train the same thing year after year after year, you kind of get good at that. But then after a certain amount of time, you need to do something else to get a stimulus. Either it's a physical or a technical or a mental stimulus. All those things is really important that sometimes you just need to do something else. Trevor, I, I've recently talked to one of the athletes you coached, Robert, and I got his perspective on what it was like to be the one on the receiving end of the, of the, of the coaching. Hey, I want to take my cycling to the next level. Um, how do I get there? And you were the one that you, the two of you worked together to be like, okay, let's take a step back. This is the goal. Uh, here's how we're going to get there, so on and so forth. Could you maybe talk about how you identified what it was that you wanted to get him to and then how you mapped it out to bring this back to, you know, sort of the I've got two years to play with or I've got three years to play with. I want to I want to increase uh, attribute X about my cycling ability, and how do I get there? In Robert's case, which is actually pretty common that you'll see with a lot of master's athletes. So you, when you have athletes who are fortunate enough to go through the sort of program that, that Sandra runs, they're going to be developed correctly from the start, mm -hmm. and they're going to be developed looking long-term. A lot of athletes who get into it on their own, especially when they get into it as a master's where there really isn't a ton of uh, institutional support for them, sure. you tend to see similar trends. And one of them is it's a lot of high intensity. They, they don't have a ton of time. The, the way to get stronger is more intensity. Then they start doing the, the local races or they go on the weekend group ride and they're discovering they're suffering on the one two-minute climb, so they go, I need more intensity because right. I need to get over that one two-minute hill, not realizing the reason they couldn't get over that one two-minute hill is because for the 40 minutes before that, they were at threshold with their tongue hanging out, trying to hang on with the field. Exactly. And when they got to that hill, they just had nothing left. When I encounter an athlete like that, which is quite frequent, what you just see is they don't have that aerobic system. They haven't built the endurance, this repeatability, the stamina. Um, they're just all top end. So you basically have to transition them, which means so with Robert, we start doing a lot less intensity. Started doing, you know, when I told him, I want you to go out and do a four hour ride, he was just like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And he's like, and how hard should I go? And I'm like, this hard. And then he, the first one he went out and did, he's, he's like, I think I did it pretty well. And I'm like, no, that was way, way too hard. But he's like, well, if I do it the way you want, I'm going to fall over. Right. This and, so, and this gets back into that conversation we've had many times on the program before about the the, de the true definition of slow. Right. Right. 
Well, when you don't have that aerobic system, when you don't have that endurance, and you tell somebody to go out and ride at a 140 heart rate, and I prescribe that, that, that sort of work by heart rate, it is painfully slow. Mm-hmm. Like his first few rides, he was doing 22, 23 kilometers an hour. So what's that, 13, 14 miles an hour? Yeah, that's slow. Which is the slowest he's probably ever gone in his life on a bike. So that first year doing that, because we were transitioning him, was not a good year. He, he got weaker because we weren't, we, he lost some of that top end, which is what he was relying on. I find that endurance, that aerobic system takes a while to develop. I think that's one of the things that takes a couple of years to develop. So he had no assets that year and he was getting killed. But to his credit, he was patient. And then when we built his endurance, built his aerobic systems, and then brought back that top-end work, he was an entirely different rider. I don't want if this to turn into the conversation about Robert, but it's a great case study. And I wonder, how do you get an athlete to trust you in that situation? Well, I'll give you my short answer, and then I would love to hear from uh, Sandra and, and Dr. Seiler. But it's a lot of conversation. It's a lot of, you need to explain why you're doing this. You need to prepare them ahead of time saying, this is what's going to happen. I, I've had this speech many or talk many times with athletes where I'll, I'll tell them, you're going to kill yourself this winter. This base season is going to be the hardest base season you've ever had. And at the end of it, you're going to be performing worse than you did last year. I want you to be ready for that. Setting expectations is a big part of this. It's explaining the plan. And Sandra, I mean, I'm jumping into, you said there were things you wanted to talk about. One is the importance of talking to your athlete about their plans. So why don't I leave it there and, and you jump on this? Yeah, as you said, the, the communication part is uh, crucial here. It sounds pretty easy, but it's actually not that easy because there's so, uh, so many different ways you can and should communicate with athletes. Some athletes like to have one kind of a communication and others a uh, totally different approach. So you have to learn each individual as a person and how they respond and kind of what they, uh, what they like and prefer. It takes a lot of time, but when you kind of get the, to know the athlete, then it gets easier and easier each time. So, so you have to make them trust you. And to make them trust you, you have to invest a lot of time in them. You have to be open. You have to be honest. You have to say what, what your plan is. You have to involve them in the plan. A lot of coaches and athletes, I think sometimes there is kind of a misconception of the final goal. Athlete can have one goal and the coach can have another goal. <laughs> and if those two aren't connected, then the path that you're going into is it's not going to be that easy. So you have to make sure that uh, you're on the same page, that you're talking the same language. And then you have to kind of uh, see what you want to do to uh, make sure you reach those goals. Uh, and then you have to invest a lot of time on discussing how you should do it. Because if you have an approach that the athlete believes in something completely different, like there's a lot of athletes that, like we talked about the high intensity part, they think that's the only thing that matters or the, the, the technical workouts or sprinting. Let's say for a, a cyclist, which is a sprinter, it doesn't help to have a peak power of 2,000 watts if you're not there when the uh, sprint is going because you got dropped two hours earlier. You have to make sure that uh, 
you're in, in agreement and that you work on the right parts of the training, the right physiology. As I said, uh, I think that to invest time in a plan and a long-term plan, it's, it's the best investment you can do. There are so many athletes that kind of, they, they invest a lot of time in training, but they're not that interested uh, in investing time in uh, training planning or training, uh, writing a training diary execution of how the workout felt. Maybe some can just upload their uh, trainings to training peaks and then uh, you don't write comments. You don't write how you felt. You don't uh, write how your daily shape was or uh, how your perceived exertion was and stuff like that. And then kind of what you get is just half of the story. You can have two exact same athletes doing uh, one workout and they can respond very different. And uh, you, have, uh, you have to get to know the athlete because stress is stress. Uh, and if an uh, athlete has uh, problems at home, work, uh, girlfriend, at, uh, school, uh, stuff like that, then that will also impact the result and the training for the athlete. So again, everything boils down to use a lot of time communicating with athletes. What about the fact that you're looking maybe three years down the road to become that different rider, but somebody might need a little bit of a win in year one or a little bit of a win in year two. How, how do you get that? How do you infuse that into the plan? Is that having some goals that are a little bit unorthodox or testing or how, how does that look? No, it can be just like you said, but uh, I, I would never recommend a long-term plan with only uh, a goal for the long term you should always have short term uh, goals as well and you should have uh, short term goals in uh, physical development in uh, test results in competition results in uh, training results maybe in, in nutrition or in sleep patterns and stuff like that so there is a lot of ways an athlete can develop and, and if you reach some of those goals then that is a success uh, an athlete normally doesn't make all of their goals, but if you make some of them, then you can look back and see, wow, I actually gained something for this period. I didn't reach my goal. My goal was to have a podium this year. I only got fourth or fifth. But then again, I saw I got better at uh, intensity distribution. Uh, I got better at nutrition, sleeping. I got better at uh, preparing for big competitions. I trained more than uh, ever. And then when you go to evaluate this season and you look for the next, next season, then you can do uh, small adjustments and then you're one step closer to reaching that goal. And that's uh, kind of what we saw in uh, the 2017 season. We didn't perform that well as we wanted to. But then we did a really big evaluation uh, with the staff, with the athletes. We did a lot of big discussions what are we going to do to get this bronze medal to become a gold medal? And by investing that time, then we ended up getting that gold medal in the Olympics. But I don't think we would ever gotten that gold medal if we had a crazy amount of success the year before. Yeah, maybe we could, but then I think we would have lost that uh, evaluation part and uh, sometimes you get uh, on your toes more if you uh, get some downs. You're uh, forced to uh, reflect more. 
the force to uh, think more on what you're doing, why you're doing it, how to do it, and stuff like that. And that is a process that's really important in uh, all kinds of sports. There was an evaluation of Norwegian sport and, and medals and all this and how it all works. And, and I, I can't remember exactly the title, but the ultimate finding by this external evaluation was is that it was success through intelligent failures hmm. uh, over time. Meaning that, you know, the make uh, putting the 18 year old or putting the young athlete into a new situation, they don't get on the podium, they make mistakes, they crash out, but they learn. And you're preparing them through small failures, through, you know, letting them meet some resistance. Because a lot of these top talents, these juniors, they haven't met any resistance. Everything has just gone from, from, from win to win for them. And then they become seniors and then they meet some resistance. And then how do you turn that into a positive? And so uh, I think that's part of this long-term uh, aspect for the coach is to find that balance between, you know, making sure they're meeting some resistance and, and then also giving them some wins along the way so that they don't lose the faith, you know, lose the, uh, the feeling. I, my daughter, you know, I, this COVID season has also done a work, done a job on her and, you know, she had lots of good results early, uh, but then she kind of got tricked into thinking she was going to, you know, keep riding the wave and, and training through. And, and she didn't give herself a break during the middle of the season. And she got really tired in August and September. Well, you know, so she met some resistance. Her, her body didn't respond in the way she was used to. But my goodness, she learned from that. Uh, and, and now she has such an, a better understanding of what it, what it takes to be, uh, an athlete that can get through an entire season and be at a peak at the end of that season, as well as, you know, in April and so forth. So I, I just think that those, we have to allow athletes to fail, but fail intelligently, if you know what I'm saying, that the failures are not devastating. They are learning or teaching moments through the way you use races, the way you use training, use alternative training. There's lots of ways that you can, can do that. Well, I think you brought up one of the really important points, especially if you're looking long-term, which is to have a plan for it. Uh, so I'm talking a little more to our audience where I know not everybody's working with a coach. A coach certainly helps. But even if you have to develop yourself, you have a plan for what you want to do for this long, these long-term goals. And then it's really about trusting that plan. Because when you're looking way ahead, there are going to be plenty of points where you are going to wonder, am I on track? Am I doing the right thing here? You're going to go to that group ride and get killed and go, wait a minute. Like no matter, Even if you tell yourself beforehand, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, I'm training differently. I'm not going to be on good form. You still go out to that group ride, you get dropped, and everything you told yourself, everything your coach told you kind of goes out the window, and you're just like, I, I just got killed. What's going on? What are some of the tricks that you have found for when they're looking long-term, when they're at that point where they, they aren't seeing any of the payout yet. How do you keep them on track? How do you keep them motivated? I think by doing some testing on the road, on the tests that means something for the sport, 
So it kind of has to have a, a value. It has to be valid. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you do uh, some testing and you do uh, competitions and you do uh, communication and including the athletes, then I think you're on the right path. But uh, what is kind of ironic here is I think you have to stay uh, true to your, the plan. Uh, but then again, there is always uh, some uh, times where you shouldn't do that because sometimes athletes get injured, sick, or uh, other stuff happens. And then you have to be willing to adjust the plan. And that was something I was not that good at in, uh, in uh, my uh, earlier days as a coach because I, I spent so much time and uh, investment in the plan. I fell in love with it. And I thought, this is what we need to do to reach our goals. And then I wouldn't want to change it, even though things happen along the road that should, uh, should make me change my mind. And that was something I learned the hard way. But uh, when you do that, and you have, to be, you have to be true to the plan, but the plan is never better than execution of the plan. It's better to have a bad plan with good execution than a good plan with a bad execution. Of course, the best thing is to have good or really good at both, but, but you have to always be willing to make some adjustments and listen to the body because this is not machines, it's human beings. And there are so many factors that uh, comes to uh, matter. And uh, I think uh, a lot of coaches doesn't spend enough time to, uh, to actually listen to the athletes uh, and make those small adjustments. And it, it, uh, it should be just be small amounts here and there because then you don't need to do the big changes. But if you wait and wait and wait and never do the small changes, then at, uh, at uh, one point, you probably have to do the big changes. And that's the ones you don't want to do. It's better to do a small change here and there and just a few tweaks and adjustments and then stick to the big picture because it's the big picture that makes a difference in the long term. It's not the, this workout I was supposed to have five times 10 minutes at uh, 400 watts, but then I felt uh, really bad today, so I couldn't only do five times eight at 380. Well, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> we just make a few adjust adjustments the next days, and then we're back on track. Yeah, and I'm, I'm listening and I'm, I'm thinking about how maybe, and I would almost use the term framework, you know, the, the, the team, the coach, the athletes have a, a framework or a philosophy that's guiding them in terms of that big picture. And then they are comfortable with the small adjustments and they don't let those become, become sources of panic or frustration. Uh, so that there's this, you know, the, the big, big scale and small scale. And, and I think coaches have to f be comfortable in their own skin enough to make those small changes and, and know that, that, that those aren't going to rock the boat because they have a, a framework that is sustainable, that is, you know, moving them in the right direction. So that's one little input I would say. And then the other is, is that, you know, 
let's let's say you've got this big goal. You're an age grouper, and you're going to do some fondo or some, you know, let, let's let's say it's a fondo. And so there's different components of that. It's going to be a hell of a, a, a an event in terms of it's longer than you're used to. There's going to be climbing. There's going to be issues with heat and drinking. So there's a bunch of puzzle pieces that are going to have to come together that are going to ultimately lead to you either feeling good about your results in this fondo or not. Well, so now we can unpack that. And along the way, you're going to do some races and you go, oh, I'm not quite as good in this criterium or I'm not as good as in my climbing as I usually am on a short climb. But along the way, you're picking out different aspects of this, these puzzle pieces, and you're giving yourself goals. You, you might say, well, I need to lose a couple of kilos. I'm carrying some body fat. That's going to help me. All right. That's a, that's just a goal that you can have. I need to learn how to eat better or drink better during the rides because I tend to get dehydrated. Okay. There's a goal. That's a specific goal that you can measure. I can, you could handle more fluid intake. Uh, okay. I need to increase my threshold power because I know I'm going to have several big climbs, da, 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 da. So, okay. And now we have another specific goal. So I would break that big event into some pieces that along the way I can experience success and, and I'm, I'm building myself, uh, even though not all the races are going to be, you know, if I'm used to doing short high intensity races and I'm trying to expand my durability to handle this five hour fondo or whatever, then, I'm going to accept that because I'm, I'm seeing success in parts of this that I know are going to be important, like, you know, the drinking, the, the body maintenance things and so forth. So that's how I would pursue it. That's how I do with, with a runner or with a cyclist is let's, let's think about your total machine. Uh, what are the components we need to build? Do you need more muscle mass? What's your top end power? You know, are you not handling drinking? Are you not, you know, your, your diet uh, issues, there's lots of things to improve. You know, I can even put a heart rate monitor on an athlete, like a rower and, and say, all right, today you're going to row at 18 strokes a minute, which means you're going to row deathly slow, uh, in, in terms of cadence, but you're not allowed to have your heart rate over 140. Now I want you to race. I want you to go as fast as you can. You three guys are lined up. Each of you, we plugged in, you know, a certain percentage of your maximum heart rate that, that is properly calibrated. And you guys can race. You just can't race above that heart rate. So now what are they doing? Well, they're developing technical efficiency. Okay, so there's lots of ways to give them, your athletes goals and metrics and things to be get better at without messing up the big plan, you know, which means in that case, I don't want these athletes working too hard that day. Now let's hear from Hushang Amiri, head coach of the Pacific Cycling Center, on the physiological adaptations that take place over the course of years. It seems you don't look just at individual years with your athletes. You are always looking several years ahead. And even it seems like there are certain attributes that in order to to improve them, you in some ways have to make short-term sacrifices. Is, is that the case? It's pretty much every athlete's needs are different, right? When we work on annual training plan or yearly training plan, YTP, all those plans that are part of quadrennial plan is part of four-year plan, which goes from Olympic cycle to Olympic cycle. We know 
some of the areas you won't develop in one or two years, it's going to take even more than that. And definitely those years that development years, the focus is going to be on building the base and plan going to look pretty different than performance plan. Can you describe in, in a minute what a, uh, a more base-focused plan versus a performance plan would look like? Yes. Uh, when we work on development plan, ideally development plan, general preparation is much longer than a specific preparation or competitive, competitive phase. Uh, and when we work on uh, performance, that general preparation is much shorter, but has longer specific preparatory phase and also much longer competitive phase. That's just building all the pieces in those phases. It makes a difference between development and performance. So how long would the general preparation phase be in each? In general for development, I would say minimum of 10 to 14 weeks compared to performance can be somewhere between five to seven weeks. Oh, so really short. It's very short because those are the athletes already proven they can perform and they don't need that much general preparation. After five to seven weeks, they move into a specific preparatory phase that they work on what they need for the season or for races. And how long would that phase be for, for each? That can be somewhere between, again, uh, six to 10 weeks. And, uh, and uh, that also can include some of the pre-competition phases. Are there attributes that you feel take more than, uh, more than a year to develop? Yes, I like to pay much to explain, you know, when, when I work with the athletes and uh, is just, I run some, identify these athletes, uh, chronical age versus biological age, and also testing results, you know, also understanding and uh, readiness for next level. When I have all this information, we can start building the plan. So annual training plan or yearly training plan, as I said, is part of four-year cycle, right? So we know this athlete's planning to be a pro and he has to be able to write six watt per kilo for half an hour. And right now he's at 4.9 watt per kilo. That's the example. So this is not going to happen over one year. This is two or three years development training to get him or her to that position. Again, when it comes to annual training plan or four-year plan, these plans are life plan. They're not a plan you build it on stone and say, done go for it. They need to be modified in regular basis. At least every block of the training can be somewhere between six to nine weeks. 
and uh, make a modification to it. Trevor, to, to turn this back again to, to Robert, or not even to Robert, but somebody that says to themselves, I have this goal and it's three years away, whether that's a specific event or a specific attribute, in terms of mapping out that three-year time period, this may be a, a, a silly question, but do you just take the traditional components of a training plan, like a base period, a build period, and multiply those by X and extend them, so to speak. Like you, instead of the base period being two months, it's five months. And instead of a build period being two months, it's five months, and so on. Or is that really too simplistic a way of looking at this? Well, you beat me to the punch because I was about to ask a very similar question of, uh, of Sandra and Dr. Seiler, and we'll... we'll I will finish by asking them the question I was going to ask. But yeah, if I'm developing an athlete, like a lot of the master's athletes I've encountered where they're, I describe as being very top heavy, Mm -hmm. they do lots of high intensity work. They haven't really built that, that aerobic machinery. I am going to, that first year is going to be a lot of base work, really focused on, it's, uh, there's almost just that dealing with that resistance getting them to accept I got to go do some long, slow volume. Uh, so I might do less intensity, a little more of that, and just train them. It's almost training the mindset mm-hmm. of this is a different way of training. Um, every year, you're know, going back to the goals. I, I would, even though I would love to do it and just say, let's just have a whole year doing nothing but base. A, I think that just turns you into a tank. And B, it's... No, no fun. It's, yeah, boring. <laughs> and you, you are probably going to see a loss of assets that you, you need to develop. So I'm still going to have a period where they can race, where we're going to really focus on trying to see what form we can get them to, just to have that sort of enjoyment. But it's as you said, and you also you heard it from my coach, Shang, that as you go down these, these years, you start to do less of that base work, get more into that um specific preparation phase and then just have longer and longer race phases where they're really honing those skills. But Sandra, Dr. Seiler, I'll, I'll throw that question to you. So let, let's make this really specific to right now. If you had an athlete, not an Olympian, but let's talk about a master's or a categorized rider who's uh, been racing a few years and they said, you know, 2021, I think, is going to be a write-off, so I really want to use this as a development year, build my 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 overall level so I can be even stronger for 2022. What suggest? And I know there's always individuals. Uh, you want to individualize this. But are there any sort of general suggestions that you could give of, well, if you're going to do that, here's how I would change 2021. I would do more of X. I would do less of Y. Are are there any recommendations you'd have? I would say invest more time in training. Uh, What what we see from uh, where I work at the Olympic uh, Training Center in Norway, the best athletes in the different endurance sports are often those who have trained the most. It's not necessarily always like this, of course, but because you reach kind of a, a top. For some sports, it might be 1,400 hours, and for, for others, 600 hours a year. But uh, increase more time. And just to love the journey 
and just appreciate the small gains each day. You don't necessarily have to set the PB on every workout, but if you just keep on grinding this, those small steps and enjoying the ride, then you get closer every day. Uh, and it, it's fascinating. It's, uh, I watched the, the Netflix documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was a bodybuilder. And he was always happy. And they said, why are you always smiling? Because every day I'm one day closer to my goal. And that was kind of a fun way to look at it. But I think the best athletes, that's how they look at it. They like to train. They like to do the work. And then they're always one step closer. Uh, and uh, yeah, when it, it, it comes to the pandemic and stuff like that, I think you just have to find uh, new uh, new goals. If you lost the, the big competition of the year, okay, maybe next year, but then you have one more year to, uh, to develop and improve. So I think you should always look for um, opportunities or uh, and I think that's what separates the best athletes from uh, those who are not that great. Is they they don't see things uh, black and white. They 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 can they can uh, find good stuff in bad situations and work from those. And I think that's something amateur athletes can learn from the best ones. That you you can always find something good from each situation. And if you're having that mindset, then you're kind of on the right path. And I have to say, since a lot of our people listening are cyclists, cyclists are lucky as heck right now. I mean, if there is a sport, a lot of sports have been just fundamentally crushed by this this pandemic in terms of competition schedule. Uh, you know, swimming has been out, rowing, a lot of things. But cycling, because cycling has both an indoor, you know, there's indoor possibilities, outdoor possibilities, long, short game. There's lots of different ways to to improve yourself. I think, you know, we're, those of us who are cycling have probably the, the least uh, reason to be upset in this situation because everyone else, a lot of other athletes are having, they're not even able to do what they normally do, or at least there've been periods in this year that they haven't even been able to get in the water, for example, as swimmers. So let's keep, let's give that some perspective, but particularly in cycling, I think, it often comes down to this issue of intensify versus extend. Um, and, and we tend to go to the intensification, you know, cause that's, that's what feels easier. Let's just go short and hard and, and call it a day. And I think, you know, Sondra is talking about all these big hour counts and that, but, but I would, I would operationalize it for the masters and say, Hey, let's see if we can add an hour to our long ride. And he said, well, I'm not doing so many long rides outdoors. All right, well, let's see how you can do indoors. Yeah, I never ride more than 90 minutes indoors. It just kills me. Okay, well, then I've got, a, I've got the thing for you because we're going to work on your – this is mental training too, to get inside your own head and stretch that duration. Uh, and then if you want to, we'll put, an interval, we'll put an interval bout at the end of that two hours, and let's see how you handle that because that's going to help prepare you for reality and racing is being able to intensify high intensity repeatability at the end of a race and not just at the beginning. So there's lots of things we can work on, uh, in this environment, indoor, outdoor, we can, you know, use the indoor Zwift and whatever for what it's good at. 
uh, and then we can get back out on the road and, and, and so forth. So I, I think, you know, this door closed, door open is a great metaphor right now because there are some really cool open doors for all of us right now if we use them we have the forums the the ability to learn from each other in different ways uh get inside our own heads on some issues maybe learn how to extend uh, and i i would also say that like in my case uh my own physiology i i you know i know i'm a kind of a fast switcher and i'm not i don't have the natural endurance and i've had to really work and and i know that the toughest workout for me are those workouts are those kind of two hour, two and a half hour threshold type sessions with surges and that those just kick my butt. Cause I guess, cause of my fiber distribution and just general wimpiness. But anyway, they, they, that's given me a goal to really work on those and extend, you know, extend myself in that direction. Uh, even though I, you know, cause my, my six minute power is kind of what it is. And, 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 and I'm happy with that, my peak power, but, but I've gotten, I've kind of that mid range I'm trying to extend. So I think we can all find, you know, what is my, where can I get the most bang for my buck in terms of some, giving it some extra attention, the, that aspect of my, my body at my age or whatever. Well, so that brings uh, brings us to the other question I wanted to ask you, which I think, uh, Dr. Seiler, you've answered. Um, if you are going to use a year as a development year, focusing more on the future, should you be focusing on weaknesses or should you just be taking a generalized approach of saying, here are the the aspects of our physiology that take longer to develop, so I'm just going to focus on those. It's depending on the sport, because in some sports, if you choose the right sport, then you're, you're, uh, then you should work on your uh, strengths. Especially if it's a technical uh, a sport, then you should work on your uh, strengths to be even better, because that's where you can uh, make the uh, biggest difference. But uh, it is different in cycling than and you, you just had to have to have that uh, capacity to be the the one who crosses the finish line first is the one who have uh, most uh, what's uh, left in the tank, so to speak. So I think in cycling you should probably emphasize both. Of course, you need to work on your weaknesses, but you should you shouldn't forget your strengths because if you forget working on your strengths. That's what's going to make uh, uh, you, or that's where you can really make a uh, difference. So I, I think uh, you should emphasize both. But uh, in a more technical sports, uh, then I think uh, often you should focus slightly more on the on your strengths. But uh, uh, I'm curious to your thoughts here, Stephen. Yeah, I've got a couple of examples and a couple of thoughts on that. The the I I think we don't want to tell the audience that this is an either or scenario because it's it's an emphasis issue. It's a slight shift in in emphasis. You know, in when we're working with elite athletes like Sonder does and I do to a certain extent, we have to remember they're training a lot of hours and they're putting together a puzzle where they're doing some strength training, they're doing some high, low intensity, long sessions, they're doing some technical work, they're doing high intensity intervals. So they're putting together this package uh, that may be 25 hours a week or something, you know, 
And, and so in periods, we may shift those hours, we reduce them slightly so they tolerate strength training a bit better. So let's just keep in mind that we're not talking about dropping all uh, in interval training or dropping all of anything. It's, it's, it's about emphasis. Okay. And, and if I, when I worked with Dutch speed skaters, which was back in 2003 to 2006 in that interim Olympic cycle leading up to Torino, I was working with a group of athletes that included some very good, uh, thousand meter types like Jan Bos, uh, and which in, in thousand meters in speed skating is what is it? It's under about a minute and eight seconds or something like that, you know, a minute and 10. Um, so there, they are high power, athletes you know huge lactates huge emphasis on getting off the off the start the first uh 300 of the 1500 the first 200 of the thousand you know it's just it's basically all out so then i come in here and i'm this endurance physiology guy and i'm telling this already gold medalist yon boss from 98 i said yon we're going to do more you know, long and long stuff. We're going to get your endurance up. And he was like, huh? And, and I said, yeah, because biomechanically, aerodynamically, it will cost you less to get a second faster at the end of the thousand or the end of the 1500 meter than it does to get a second faster at the front. You're not going to be able to increase your top end power very much, but if we can improve your endurance, then you can sustain in your last lap and, and gain that second there at a lower physiological cost. And then, you know, and then slowly he says, yeah, but I don't want to lose my start. And then I said, well, you won't because we will do very specific sessions to maintain that, that part of your technical and, and muscular, uh, you know, assets. So, and, and eventually they started saying, well, okay, this actually is working, you know, and he ended up winning, at the Dutch national championships, the 500, the thousand and the 1500, which he had never done before in 2005. So, um, but it took buy-in and it took the understanding that I, you know, I, the coach, we're not going to, you're not going to lose your top end, but we're not going to try to keep making it better. It's already world-class, but what is keeping you from being your best is some other weakness. So you have to really do a careful analysis of, you know, my sport, the, the issues, the technique, the, the different aspects and say, where, where can I change his, you know, it's, it's a tweaking of his or her uh, set of assets that they bring to the starting line and that will add up over the three hour race or the six hour race or the three minute race add up to a better performance. So I, I think it's really important that we don't scare people and think, Oh, they're, they're talking about me just stopping doing what I'm good at. No, we're talking about emphasis. Uh, Sondra, you're new to the program, so we like to end with uh, our take-home messages. What is the most important thing in your mind for people to, to, to keep in mind when they're thinking long-term like this? Uh, first of all, you have to set goals, and you have to think about those goals, and then you have to do a plan for how to reach those goals. Then you have to do a capacity analysis test. You have to get uh, done a gap test to see where you need to improve to reach those goals. And this, when this is done, you need to uh, make a plan and you need to stick to the plan as much as possible. 
And you should never take tough decisions alone. You should have uh, someone to talk to, a coach or uh, a fellow uh, training partner or someone else you trust. Uh, and you should uh, do regular testing to see if you're on the right path or if you have to do uh, adjustments. You should always uh, write a training diary so you can uh, uh, both see what you've done and that should also um, be uh, uh, a guidance for what you're going to do in a time to come. And lastly, you should be really, really, really patient because it takes a long time to develop big skills. And if you want big skills, you have to invest a lot of time. Very good. Trevor, what would you say? I guess I would say if you are thinking about making next year a development year to see if you can raise your level and really thinking to the following year, and this is the first time you've done something like that, just remember that some of these long-term games are exactly that. They're long-term. So you're going to be doing a lot of work without really seeing improvements for a long period of time. And I love that Dr. Seiler said, set some, you know, give yourself these, these points where you just go and target something or do something just to keep yourself motivated. But don't be discouraged when you don't see the improvement right away. Keep reminding yourself of that. Have the goals, have the, the, the benchmarks, but just bear in mind that you might actually get worse before you get better. The final few points I would make is I love the fact that it's been mentioned in, in some way multiple times throughout the show, and that is sort of embracing the process here and loving the process. Um, taking that Arnold Schwarzenegger mentality of day by day, it, it builds, it builds, it builds, it gets you to that final place, but you have to enjoy it in the moment too. You can't always just be focused three years down the road or whatever it is. You have to enjoy the method to get you there. And then within the context of uh, the pandemic and things and the, what we were closing with there, it's, you know, it's kind of summed up, I guess, with a cliche, which is to train smarter, not harder. It's not about taking what you have done in some aspects and just adding a multiplier to it. It's thinking about things in a, a new way opening one other door and hopefully that you can uh, have that resiliency to turn it into a positive. So that's what I would add. Okay. And Dr. Seiler, we'll finish out with you. Oh, well, first of all, I just say it's been a one, it's been great uh, chatting with all three of you and, and uh, uh, I love this topic. Um, and I would say that, it really does come down to enjoying the process. Uh, find beauty, find rhythm, find flow in the daily workouts. In, you know, that long, that two-hour boring ride indoors on the trainer when it's pouring rain outside and it's 40 degrees, think about breathing. Think about rhythm. You know, there's always something we can get into i find but but enjoy that we are so lucky uh so let's you know 
let's enjoy the aesthetic of the rhythms that we create as athletes and uh, you know that that's the grind and it is a it's a it's a, a wonderful thing that we get to do uh, so if we embrace the grind embrace the you know the what is it the seal say embrace the suck or whatever <laughs> but i don't see it that way i think you know i i do think that there is something special about the fatigue about feeling that and let's enjoy it let's let's get inside of it and i really think that's going to give pay dividends down the road that was another episode of fast talk Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and questions. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Steven Seiler, Sundra Scarley, Hushang Amiri, Robert Palter, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.